We are in Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. We, uh, we finished up chapter 4 last week, but we're, we're really not quite done yet. Um, we're uh, we're going to continue to wrestle a little bit here with the, the nature of temptation before we move on into chapter 5. Uh, the chapter break here isn't, uh, it's not great. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the, the chapters and verses were, uh, were added to Scripture by a monk in the medieval period to make it easier for everybody to talk about it, right? Uh, if you imagine uh, not having chapters and verses, the, uh, the closest you can get anyone to what you're talking about by reference is just the book. Uh, you'd say, as Matthew says, right, in his gospel. And then you just kind of have to count on everybody knowing Matthew well enough to know where in Matthew you are when you start to quote it. Uh, with chapter and verse, obviously, it's a little easier. But, uh, you know, nobody's perfect. And occasionally this monk made uh, chapter divisions where uh, the logic doesn't really make a clean break. And that's the case here. So we're going to, we're, we're picking up this Jesus as our great high priest and that's going to continue right through the beginning of chapter 5. But let me pray, and we'll talk about repentance some more. And, uh, and then we'll move on into the topic of the high priest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that Jesus is, in fact, our great high priest. Uh, and that he has not only acted as a priest for us, a perfect priest, and accomplished forever all that a priest is to accomplish, but that he did so by taking his own blood into the altar and placing it on the altar for us, uh, that he accomplished atonement uh, as our priest and as that blood offering. Uh, we thank you for that and pray that as we study Hebrews this morning, that we would come to a right understanding of it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so notice, again, remember that the turn has been made, chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We want to stop right there and just remind you that the, the context for everything the author of Hebrews is talking about up to this point, and it will continue on through the, the, major, uh, the majority of the rest of the book, is Moses and the law of Moses and the Exodus account. Uh, and that's on display right here in this very first verse. Since we have a great high priest, his audience knows the value of Christ as our high priest because they know about the high priest in the Old Testament. Remember, we needed a representative to stand between us and God. Aaron is that representative, and he represents us perhaps no, no, at no point, I say us, the people of Israel, perhaps at no point, more importantly, and when he goes into the Holy of Holies with the blood of the atoning sacrifice and applies that blood to the altar, well, inasmuch as, as Aaron was a real man and did that in a real tent and, and went into a real Holy of Holies and up to a real altar with real blood, all of that was symbolic. It was pointing ahead to our true high priest who goes in with his own blood and applies it to the altar in heaven. And so... That's what he's talking about. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, just like passing through the veil we talked about last week. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, which is exactly what the people did not do in the Exodus. Right? He's already told us, don't do what they did. They were faithless. We must continue faithful. 
Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw nigh to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The author of Hebrews is making a pastoral move here. He's, he's reminding us that we don't just have such a high priest, but that that high priest has suffered as we've suffered and therefore is able to represent us knowing our suffering. He's going to continue that theme in chapter 5, particularly the theme of Christ's suffering and therefore his knowing. Uh, but what we want to do before we move on is come back to this uh, verse 15. Uh, Jesus Christ has in every respect been tempted as we are yet without sin. Uh, and there's been confusion in the, the last decade in particular uh, over what it means for Christ to have been tempted in every respect as we are. And I want to remind you of the, the pattern that I've suggested to you, that temptation has two parts for us as fallen people. Uh, we have an inherent sin nature. Uh, that sin nature, it's a cancer. It's not inherent to humanity prior to the fall. You don't need a sin nature to be fully human. But we do, all of us, because all of us were represented by Adam. All of us have a sin nature. And that sin nature twists the good desires God has given us, and it also produces wicked desires in us. And those desires are one half of our experience of temptation. The other half of that experience of temptation is the, the outward things that tempt us, right? When, when we see something that we want, that's an external temptation. Sometimes the external temptation is, is totally morally neutral, right? When I see something I want, assuming that thing is itself not sin, right? Uh, I see a car that I want. Uh, there's nothing sinful about the car, but it is an external uh, cause of my sin. It's tempting me to do this, right? Uh, to, to steal the car or to take money that I ought to be obediently using in one way and spending it on the car instead, right? It's, it's those two things together that is often our experience. Sometimes the external is stronger than the internal. Uh, I mean, it's a stronger temptation. It, it appeals to something in us that's sinful, but is not something we may struggle with very much. But that external temptation has aroused that that sinful nature in us. Sometimes our sinful nature has particular things that it's just always aroused about. It's always worked up, looking for opportunities to sin, and it meets some external temptation. For us, we don't even need an external temptation all the time. Sometimes that sinful desire in us, it animates us to go sin. It rises up in us. There's been no external temptation, no external aggravation. We just, this thing in us rises up and we go and we do it. That's how temptation works for us. Christ is tempted, but his temptation doesn't work the way ours does. He has no inherent sin nature. Christ is not a sinner. He, he does not share. Adam, when Adam did his work and he represented us, 
He did not represent Christ. So Christ, though he is fully human, he, he is not, he does not have a sin nature. He's like Adam before the fall. Before the fall, Adam was fully human and innocent and had no sin nature. The sin nature comes at the fall because of that fall, right? Linked uh, inextricably to that fall. And again, what he did, he did for us on our behalf. So it's true for us as well. We have this sin nature, but Christ did not. And so there's, there's nothing inherently sinful in Christ for external temptations to appeal to. But that doesn't mean that there's nothing in Christ for them to appeal to because there are good desires, godly desires, that external temptations can also twist, right? We take these good desires and we twist them because of our sin nature, we twist them because of the external temptations we encounter. And those external temptations are part of the, the, the mechanism by which those things are twisted, but they're, they're able to be twisted because we are, in fact, sinners. Right? Now, Christ, though innocent, meets these external temptations. In fact, we have no evidence whatsoever that Christ was tempted by anything other than external considerations, external aggravations. And so the problem with everything I've just said, though we can, we, it's all built on what we know is true from God's word, is it, it means that when we read Hebrews here in verse 15, we, it immediately rules out the most natural assumption on our part, that he's been tempted as we are in every respect how can the author of Hebrews say he's been tempted even as we are in every respect if Christ doesn't have a sin nature? That's, that's what we struggle with. And I think that, uh, that the first thing we want to see, and this is where uh, most of the, the theologians before us go, is they, they reject the idea that every single sin that can be uh, performed by a person that he experienced the temptation to every single one of those sins. We talked about that last week. It's kind of absurd, isn't it? Uh, that the idea that that, that would happen. Uh, there's so many reasons, and we talked about it last week, about why that's, that's just not on the table. That's not an option. So how then, it, it's not only that not every single kind of sin that could be committed, that he was tempted by these things, it's also not true that the, the, the entire mechanism of temptation as we experience it was experienced by Christ because he doesn't have a sin nature. He was nonetheless tempted. And in fact, he was tempted in a way that is more severe than our own temptation. And this is what the author of Hebrews is getting at. Remember, why is the author of Hebrews telling us this? He wants us to know that our high priest sympathizes that our high priest understands experientially what we've been through. That's, that's what he's trying to assert. And so we, we need to come to an understanding of this line in the text that asserts that, that supports that. And I'm going to argue that, and we're going to keep reading here in a second so you can see how this is supported from the text. I'm going to argue, as many theologians have before me, 
that in resisting the temptation, Christ suffered more than we do when we give in to it. There is a relief in giving in to temptation, isn't there? It's like an itch that has to be scratched. And sometimes we, we know we're not supposed to scratch an itch, right? Uh, if you keep scratching it, you're going to tear up your, your skin. Uh, you're going to cause problems. We know we shouldn't do it. I've never worn a cast, but I, I know people who have and carry a coat hanger around with them everywhere so they can reach down in the cast and scratch, right? We've got this itch that needs to be scratched, and you, it seems like the only way to get relief is to scratch, right? Every time we sin, we scratch. We get relief. Is it real relief? No. Any more than, than an itch gets real relief, because, right, you scratch it, it feels better. But just as soon as you stop scratching it, it demands to be scratched again, doesn't it? And so we scratch it again. We keep scratching and getting relief this way. Christ never gives in. And remember, Christ is a model. He's modeled on Adam. Innocent, tempted to rebel against God and reject God's word. And Adam gives in and rebels. And Christ does not. Look at the the author of Hebrews, what he does here. So I'm going to pick up in 15. And keep reading. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. He's talking about the earthly high priest. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor to himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, Psalm 2-7, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he also says in another place, Psalm 110-4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is where he comes back to the theme. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, this is a a difficult passage, but I hope I'm going to make it clear. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. If Jesus Christ is God and innocent, never sinned, no sin nature, how does he learn obedience through what he suffered? How is he made perfect? I think there's only one way to make sense of this, and that's to understand that the author of Hebrews is thinking of the covenant of works as he says it. Remember Adam. Remember, we talked about this. I, I can't remember if this was with just the staff or if we talked, like Nathan covered it in his sermon, or maybe we talked about it in Sunday school. But Adam and Eve, and Adam in particular, he's the federal head, though Eve is there, she's involved. Adam and Eve are told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent says to them, 
God only told you that because he doesn't want you to know good and evil. You see, knowing good and evil makes you like him, and he doesn't want you to be like him. But then, do you remember what it says in the text? You know, Eve saw that it was desirable, right, good to eat, so she ate, she took, and she gave it to her husband, he ate. And what happened? Their eyes were opened and they knew good and evil. Wait, I thought the serpent was lying. Wasn't the serpent lying? But when they ate, they knew good and evil. That's what the serpent said would happen. What's the serpent's lie? Specifically, the serpent's lie is he doesn't want you to know good and evil. Now, if you've never heard this before, it's going to take a minute for you to absorb. God wanted them to know good and evil. Do you know how God intended to communicate good and evil to them? To give them an experiential knowledge of good and evil? To resist. You see, if Adam and Eve had not eaten, they would have immediately, by not eating, come into the knowledge of good and evil. God was granting to them the very thing that the serpent told them he didn't want them to have. And how did they come into that knowledge? Through rebellion. How should they have come into that knowledge? By resisting. And listen, in resistance, there would have been suffering. Eve is not wrong when she looks at the fruit and she says, hmm, that looks good. That looks really good. To stand there looking at it and not eat it requires a suffering. It requires obedience. Look at verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Just like Adam and Eve would have if they hadn't eaten. What did he suffer? Of course, the, the, the cross and, and everything else, but I think the author of Hebrews is is getting at that cross in a more subtle way than we might imagine. How did Christ come to the cross? He came through a temptation to skip the cross by accepting a kingdom from the serpent. Do you remember Christ's temptation, the three temptations in the wilderness? It comes at the beginning of his ministry. It's, it's a recapitulation of the temptation of Adam. Christ is coming into his earthly ministry. It's getting started. And as it begins, like Adam, he goes out into the wilderness and meets the serpent. Adam's in the garden. Christ is in the wilderness. And that's not on accident. Christ meets with the serpent and is tempted. Specifically of the three, one of them is, Bow down to me now, and all of this will be yours. I will grant you the kingdom. But Christ has already been promised a kingdom. And he knows that the right way to come into that kingdom is through obedience. And so he resists the temptation. There is a suffering he must go through. So that again, the suffering here, he learned obedience through what he suffered, is a reference to, to all of his suffering. All of his passion. That passion used in the, the, the sense of suffering but he goes through that suffering because he refuses to give in to the lie of the serpent, to take hold of that thing that's held out by God in a way that God has not 
called him to take hold of it. Adam failed. Christ did not. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect. See this? This is what was held out to Adam, wasn't it? Had Adam not eaten, what would have been the result? He would have been, to use our, our theological language, he would have been confirmed in righteousness. How do we know that? Because Christ has done what Adam didn't. And the result of him doing that, restoring us, is not that we're back in the garden innocent and have to be tested. The result of Christ doing what God commanded for us on our behalf is that we are, are made perfect forever. We are glorified and established in that perfection without any possibility of failing ever again for eternity. That's the result of what Christ did. And what did Christ do? He made up for what Adam failed to do. So what is awaiting Adam as he stands before the tree? God intends him to learn good and evil by his obedience. And because of that obedience, knowing good and evil, God will establish him in perfection forever. That's what's at stake in the garden. And Adam fails, and so the story goes a completely different direction. But Christ comes, Paul says, as a last Adam. And he does what Adam failed to do, so that the author of Hebrews can say here, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, also like Adam. You see, if Adam had obeyed, not only would Adam have been confirmed in righteousness, made perfect, having learned right and wrong by means of obedience, but as our representative, he would have accomplished it all for us. We would have been made perfect by Adam's obedience. Again, lost because Adam doesn't obey, restored because Christ does. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. How is it that the author of Hebrews can say that he's tempted as we are in every respect, yet without sin? How is it in every respect? The author of Hebrews, I believe, is getting at the, uh, the, the quality of the temptation. The, that he, there's... There's no deficiency in the temptation of Christ. The temptation of Christ is like the temptation of Adam. That temptation which is far greater than any temptation we face. Christ addressed that temptation not only by appealing to the word of God and, and learning obedience, as the author of Hebrews says, by not giving in to the temptation. But greater than Adam's suffering in the midst of that temptation. Christ is at the end of 40 days in the wilderness. Adam has everything to eat and is in a beautiful garden. Christ is 40 days without food and in the midst of a wilderness. He stands in a wilderness to which, as a human being, he has been subjected because of what Adam did. So Adam is in ideal circumstances and is disobedient. Christ is in the most difficult circumstances and is obedient. Christ suffers. It's 
one of the problems, I think, with the way we've read Hebrews 4 on this line is that, uh, that the, in the end, what we try and do is equate Christ's suffering to ours in temptation. Christ's suffering was far greater. You see, Christ can, he can sympathize with us in our suffering, but we can't sympathize with him in his. Christ's suffering is greater than ours. All of this serving this, this pastoral impulse on the part of the author of Hebrews to encourage us. Verse 16 of chapter 4, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help, to help in time of need. And then he says, uh, verse 2 of chapter 5, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. That weakness is not the weakness of a sin nature, but of a fallen body. Because of this, he is obligated to, to offer sacrifice for his own sins. That's talking about the high priest in the Old Testament. Obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. We might see a contrast with Christ here, because Christ didn't sin, therefore didn't need to offer uh, a sacrifice for his own sins. But the author of Hebrews is not contrasting the Old Testament priesthood here with Christ, as he will later. He's comparing Right? In the same way that he had weakness, and in his case, that weakness included sin uh, and required him to offer his own sacrifice for his own sins before he could represent the people. Though that, that particular mechanism is not true of Christ, Christ also uh, experienced weakness and, uh, and in that way was one of us. No one takes this honor to himself. Uh, Christ didn't either. We're going through the psalm quotes down to verse 7. Uh, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Uh, so again, he, he's giving you specific ways in which Christ expresses this suffering. And he's reminding us that Christ accomplished this obedience by trusting the Father, by relying upon the Holy Spirit. So, verse 9, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, he's introduced Melchizedek. He's not actually going to take that up yet. Beginning in chapter 5, verse 11, all the way through chapter 6 to the end of the chapter, he, uh, he begins to transition to another warning passage. But look at how he finishes chapter 6. He says, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He repeats himself in order to tip his hat to us that we are now coming back to the topic he started before the warning. So we'll begin to unpack the, uh, the priestly order of Melchizedek when we get to chapter 7. Okay, let me pause. And uh, questions on this, this idea of Christ being tempted in every respect, even as we are. Billy. No. That's right. That, that temptation is a theme. You even see Peter saying to him at one point, right, hey, listen, all this talk about you dying, you need to stop that foolishness, right? Uh, they, he says it's time to go back to Jerusalem. 
And the apostles are like, you know they're trying to kill you back there, right? Jesus says, oh, it's necessary. And Thomas, uh, it's hard not to read Thomas as sarcastic here. It's probably not the best way to read him, but it's kind of how he sounds. Let's go die with him, right? He's determined to die. Let's go die with him. Uh, And even on the cross itself, uh, there's a voice that cries out, if you are the Son of God, bring yourself down from the cross. That phrase, if you are the Son of God, actually only occurs in the Gospels in one other place, and that's in the mouth of Satan in the wilderness temptations. All right? I can't be dogmatic about it, but I'm inclined to believe that there is a demon-possessed person at the foot of the cross crying out with mocking words to Christ that Christ would have known from his own temptation. If you are the Son of God, just come down. And Christ certainly could have. If you are the Son of God, Satan says, cast yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. The angels will catch you. From the foot of the cross, the cry goes up. If he, if you are the Son of God, call the angels. Legions of angels should come and deliver you. Right? So yes, the temptation goes right up to his death. Other questions? Uh, I can't add any insight to how he learned obedience if, if the insight we're looking for is, uh, is psychological, right? Uh, how did God, how did Christ as God not know something and how did he begin to know something? How does he learn, and of all things, how does he learn obedience if he's never sinned? Yeah, I, I think it's his experience, but I, I think the language is chosen by the author of Hebrews intentionally to point us back to the temptation in the garden. That what they didn't know was good and evil. That what God held out to them was the knowledge of good and evil if they would obey. And what the serpent lied about was that God didn't want them to know it and they could take it from God by force if they would disobey him. And Christ, as a second Adam, as that last Adam, is placed into the same circumstances. Worse off in many respects, but, uh, but the same dynamic. He's been offered a kingdom uh, and all that comes with that. Uh, and uh, by God, he's been offered this kingdom. The way to that kingdom is by obedience and specifically in his case, obedience with respect to the cross and his suffering. Uh, and so it's, it's not... I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want to miscommunicate. Uh, It's true, right? Christ is a true person. He's truly God and truly man. He is coming, and it requires true obedience for him to accomplish what is needed, both to fulfill the covenant of works so that we can be made perfect forever, but also to remove the curse So that's what Christ is doing. That's the gospel. We tend to focus in the gospel on the fact that I get forgiven of my sins and go to heaven forever. But what Christ is doing is twofold. 
because what was required of Adam was perfect obedience. Now, none of us are capable of, of supplying that perfect obedience. And even if we could, we're all under a curse because what Adam did, he did on our behalf. So we need the curse removed and the obedience accomplished. That's what we need. And the good news is Jesus Christ has done both of those things. So I think the language of learning obedience is a direct reference to what God was holding out to Adam and Eve, what the serpent lied about and told them they would have to take by force through disobedience, and Christ gains it through obedience. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what was learned was the same in both cases. The means by which it was learned was different uh, and, and had a different result. Said simply, the knowledge of good and evil by obedience to God leads to life. The, the knowledge of good and evil by disobedience to God leads to death. Uh, and so Adam gave us death and Christ gave us life. And in order to give us life, he had to go through the same trial that Adam did. He had to be tempted to take from force by God what he was holding out willingly if only they would suffer, Adam and Eve, if only Christ would suffer. And so it's by suffering, through suffering, that he learns the obedience as our Adam, our second representative. Other questions? The author's intent, again, is to give us comfort. The high priest that we have, our great high priest, knows our suffering. He has suffered what we've suffered and more. There's no suffering we can experience that will outstrip, that will exceed the suffering that Christ experienced. And so he is able, as our great high priest, to sympathize with us. That's the author's point. One of the things I want to make sure we, we take with us, though, as we, we leave the passage and move on, because it's pertinent to our current culture, is that our current culture, and this is, this is so important, our current culture says temptation is not sin. When you give in to temptation, you sin. But that is not what Scripture teaches Scripture teaches temptation rises up out of our sin nature and is itself wicked, that internal desire. And when we give in to it, that is another sin. And the reason that culturally, especially among evangelicals, everyone recoils at this, is they say you're going to burden people. It's oppressive to tell them that their temptation is sin. They're going to despair because all of us suffer so much temptation. To which I answer, have you ever heard the gospel? Have you ever understood the gospel? Does Christ's work for us stop at the acts of sin we perform? Or does it cover our entire sin nature and make us perfectly whole it makes us perfectly whole. Listen, we ought to flee to Christ and repent of our sin in the experience of every single temptation and rejoice that we have a Savior whose blood covers even that. Our temptation is not a cause of despair. It's, a, it's another opportunity to rejoice and give thanks to God 
for the finished work of Christ. I'm concerned that the determination to reject the idea that our wicked desires are sinful and that they only become sin if we give in to them, which is Roman Catholicism, by the way. I'm concerned that the, the biggest problem with that, it's not that I'm determined to be right and make sure everybody knows they're wrong. The biggest problem with that is it diminishes the finished work of Christ. It ignores, rejects, or is ignorant of the fact that Christ's death doesn't just cover your sinful acts. It covers the fact that you are a sinner. That's what he's done for us. It's absolute. It's a poor gospel that can't cover temptation. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. David. That's right. It's, it's one of my favorite images that God uses in Scripture is that we are a bride being prepared, being adorned for a husband. Right? Jesus uses this example with, uh, with the virgins who show up with their lamps and they're waiting for the bridegroom to come. Right? You've probably heard it explained before, but in the New Testament culture, uh, when a man wanted to take a woman as his wife, he would go and negotiate that with the, the father. Uh, and having negotiated terms with the father, he would leave and go to prepare, whether that meant raising the money or gathering the, uh, the bride price or building a home or whatever it was, he would go do this. And having done it, he would come back for his bride. And that's the, the moment we're at when we enter into the parable of the virgins with Christ, that they are waiting for that groom to come back. Right? And that's where we are in redemptive history. The price has been negotiated. In fact, it's been paid, but we're waiting for the groom to come back and get us. It's, it's assured. It's promised. There is an engagement that has been made, and we're waiting for him to come back. And in the midst of that waiting, we are told over and over and over again, I, and I, I say this without judgment because I'm guilty of it myself, but it, it really does when you stop and think about it. It astounds that we are confused when we suffer. Again, it's, it's just like, have you ever read the Bible? I don't mean we don't like to suffer. Of course we don't like to suffer. Nobody wants to suffer. But the confusion over it. Brothers and sisters, we should not be confused about our suffering. Hate it. Be ready for it to be over. Don't go looking for it if it's not looking for you. But when we experience it, it's only what God told us was going to happen. And he didn't mention it once. It's not in some dark corner of the Bible, and you've got to go looking for it with your Ph.D. from seminary. It's just all over the place. We saw it in the, the text this morning. 
I mean, Abel doesn't even have a speaking part, but he suffers for doing what God has told him to do. I mean, from the very beginning, the offspring of the serpent hate the offspring of Eve. Suffering is what has been ordained for us and should not be confusing to us while we wait for our groom to come back and get us. Okay, anything else before we move on? We've got just a few minutes left this morning. Okay. Yeah. No, no, he was tempted. Christ is tempted. But the temptation is external, and it appeals to desires that are themselves good desires. What Christ does in resisting the temptation is he refuses to allow those desires to be twisted into sinful desires and take hold of the the thing that is sin. So he's absolutely tempted. Think about the things he's tempted to do. Take a kingdom, right? But he's he's been offered a kingdom. The desire for a kingdom is, is a godly desire. That's who he is, right? He is the son of Psalm 2. He's been given a kingdom. He now takes hold of it by suffering. The temptation is to skip the suffering. And even skipping suffering is not a sin, right? I mean, the desire, it is not a, desire, a sin to not want to suffer. That is, in fact, I think wanting to suffer, like actually wanting to suffer, that's twisted. That's not right. Christ doesn't want to suffer, but he's willing to suffer because it's what he's been called to by the Father. The, the, the temptation that the, uh, that the devil offers in the wilderness is to get to the same end but skip the suffering. So a kingdom held out without suffering appeals to things in Christ that are not themselves sinful. What's sinful is a desire to disobey God, and that desire doesn't exist in Christ. And so he resists the temptation to take a kingdom by skipping the suffering. So there's an external temptation. It appeals to internal desires, but not sinful desires. And he resists the twisting of those desires and, uh, and refuses to act in a sinful way. And therefore, he, he resists the temptation. Was it John Owen that said that uh, our sin is, is really a weariness of God's law? I can't remember who said that. I, it was either him or Calvin. I can't remember. But getting back to the temptation being a sin, your sin begins with considering, you know, feeling good. So it's not just the act. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because if you're not if you're not weary of God's law, then you're not going to consider mm-hmm. even doing that. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what you see. I've said this before. If you can't pray Psalm one nineteen, then you've not you, you don't have a, a healthy relationship with the law of God. If all you can do is talk about the law not not being able to condemn us and just kind of look over his shoulder and spit every time you say the law, right? If there's no good place for the law in your theology, then you've not understood the law. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, and it is a hymn 
to the wisdom, beauty, perfection, and glory of the law of God. The law of God ought to be a curse in our mouth when it's twisted. If you're going to use the law of God to try and merit salvation, then that's a mess, right? That's not how the law of God works. You cannot merit the law, merit salvation by keeping the law of God, but the law of God is a lamp to our feet and a light into our paths, right? So, um, yeah, Christ is able to say that he loves the law of God, and the law of God for Christ was that he would suffer on our behalf. So, okay, we've got a few minutes left. Other questions or comments? Yeah. Well, I, I think there's different camps out there. There is a group saying that, uh, that same-sex desires are natural and, uh, and that uh, just like wanting to eat is natural, but that there are sinful ways to give in to that and there are ways, uh, some are saying, that aren't sinful. Uh, there's a crowd moving towards orthodoxy from there, from that position, there's a crowd that, that says, uh, no, the, the desires are not natural, but they're not sinful either. Uh, it's just when you act on them that you become a sinner with respect to, to that sin. Um, that's, uh, that's the Roman Catholic doctrine. Uh, no desire that rises up in you, according to Roman Catholicism, is a sin. It's only a sin when you give in to the desire. Uh, and yet there are sins that we know from Scripture that some sins are only ever desire. The desire is sin, you know, like the Ten Commandments, coveting. What is coveting? Desiring something. Now, not all desire is sin. Some desires are, are morally neutral. Uh, some desires find their fulfillment in godly things. That's fine. But... Uh, a desire that is contrary to the character of God is itself sin, period. How anybody could argue that same-sex attraction is not a sinful desire, but it is sin when you give in to it, is absurd to me. That makes no sense whatsoever. If it's not a sinful desire, how could it be a sin to fulfill it, right? But again, they're just, they're trying 
uh, those who go about that, that they take that approach, they are trying to, to squirm and to twist uh, and to, to create a truth that will allow people who suffer from same-sex attraction to not feel guilty for the attraction. And so there's, there's a whole group of people who are in the, the evangelical camp who say, I have same-sex attraction, but I don't give in to it. And praise God, they don't. And remember, not giving in to temptation is harder than giving in to it. And so praise be to God that they don't give in to that temptation, but they aren't willing to call the desire itself sinful. Uh, and that's a group that... Uh, and I don't remember where the label came from, but they, they take it on willingly, uh, that we refer to as side B. The idea that same-sex attraction is not a sin, uh, that there are aspects of the culture, of uh, the, the gay culture, that are laudable, that there are things that we have lost in the fall that uh, heterosexual uh, desires in particular are incapable of recovering, and so homosexual, same-sex desires are a blessing from God because they give us insight into those things that were lost that heterosexuals can't see. That's all side B. And there have been those in the PCA, in our denomination, who have flirted with that. Um, but I think the denomination has answered uh, quite clearly that we're not going to accept that. Yeah, I, I think there's actually a lot of validity to that argument. There's, there, the, the desire of a man for a woman is absolutely a natural desire. In a vacuum, right, it's a natural desire. And it is one that, that receives or, or expresses, experiences a godly fulfillment when it terminates in a spouse. There's nothing unnatural about that desire. We can twist and often, so often do, twist that desire so that it terminates in an ungodly fulfillment. Homosexuality is a twisted desire that has no natural and neutral position. It is not natural. That's Paul's language, Roman one, Romans 1, unnatural desires, right? And so the attempt to say on the part of those who are in that community or defending that community that the desire itself is natural I didn't, and, and you, I love that you, you made the statement, I didn't ask for this, right? Did anybody here ask for their sin nature? Is there anyone here who struggles with a particular sin and you are the one who asked for it? No. You see, and this is a really important issue, 
We want to speak the truth lovingly to those who are suffering any temptation that they struggle with. We want to encourage brothers and sisters not to give in to the temptation. Where the, the temptation appeals to a desire in us that is innately sinful, we want to encourage them to repent, reminding them that that's covered, that Christ has covered that. But we, uh, what we can't do is say to that community, uh, your, your desire is not itself sinful. Homosexuals, same-sex attracted people, are not special. And we got to get over that. Everybody wants to make them special. Right? I've gone to general assemblies in the PCA where they stand up on the floor of the assembly, pastors in our denomination, and they make long speeches about the fact that they are same-sex attracted, and they make an argument for being special. And by special, I mean a special sinner. I'm special in my trouble. I'm not like the rest of you. You have it easy. My sin's really hard. I'm special. And as that message has permeated so much of evangelicalism, we've all just kind of imbibed it and just kind of unthinkingly sort of begun to think, yeah, that's, that's a special category. It's not. There's nothing special about this category of sin. All of us are sinners. All of us deal with temptation. And every single one of us inherited it from Adam. None of us asked for it. People who struggle with same-sex attraction aren't special. They're sinners like the rest of us. And they need Jesus like the rest of us. And the biggest problem we've got, the worst thing we've done to and for them, is let them believe they're special without telling them they're not. You need Jesus just like we do. Quit whining about it. It's hard for all of us. Right? And a lot of that talk is rooted in the idea that their desire is not sinful inherently. And that they are not sinners for being same-sex attracted. They are. That is sin. It rises up out of a sin nature. And I'm a sinner too, even though same-sex attraction isn't my particular expression of my sin nature. Right? And so, um, we've gone five minutes over, which I'll probably get in trouble for from somewhere. But J.D. was here. And I'm, I expect J.D. to defend me. There you go. Okay, let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that we don't have to find our relief by denying our sin. We can accept the fact that we are sinners and repent of that sin and take it to Christ who puts it away forever and never says to us that we filled up our quota never says to us that he's run out of grace and mercy, never says to us that his blood didn't quite cover that. Father, I pray that we would believe the gospel so deeply that we would not be afraid to accept and embrace and repent of the fact that we are sinners and particular sinners as we uh, experience temptation day in and day out. We thank you for Christ, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.